Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Grace Lynch. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Usually this is the part where we playfully banter back and forth. Uh, but, you know, given the seriousness of the subject matter and the fact that we have uh, an interview today, we're going to we're going to skip that part. The conversation uh, that we're going to have is with Peter Ambler, who is the executive director of Giffords. I'm on the board of Giffords and I asked Peter to come on and we're looking forward to that conversation. With all that said, uh, are you all ready to talk about guns? Yeah, and I think, Jason, I think a good place to start is I think we're going to assume our audience knows the basic details at this point of what happened, and I don't think it's necessary to recap everything, but I think one place to start here before we get to the larger gun control debate is just the details surrounding the police response seemed to be the big conversation this week in addition to the gun control debate. And what I find notable, uh, you know, you're a parent, I worked in schools, this is just a puzzling situation where... The police took 78 minutes after the shooter entered the school to respond. And there was this period of time where significant period of time in which students were trapped in this classroom, which I can't even imagine what that was like. Now, I think there are sort of two layers to this. One is like, what meaning at all do we make from this? But there also was a lot of stuff on the Internet about like, you know, calling these cops cowards and things like that. I would just say that it's not immediately clear that that's what was going on here. It might have been a miscommunication between the dispatcher and the police commander and that there was some sense that this guy was in there by himself, I think, is what at least the story is today. They thought that they had him isolated in this classroom. Is that what we is that the sort of facts as we have it today? I have not heard that. I have not heard that that was the impression. Um, the Daily did a pretty detailed breakdown of kind of the minute by minute report as it was most accurately known Tuesday morning. And from their account, it seemed pretty evident that there were children and teachers in these rooms, especially because several of the 911 calls were coming from kids in the room who were saying, I am in the room. They did report, however, that several of the officers who were not going into the room were very frustrated that that was the call that was being made to not breach the door. So this was not a, a universally approved upon approach by any stretch and that there was a lot of discontent. And what eventually led to the call being changed to eventually go in and confront the gunman directly, I think that is still a little ambiguous on what led to that change of procedure. Um, but the fact that that initial call was made, they have acknowledged was a mistake, but it's clearly a pretty devastating mistake. Yeah. Uh, so it's hard for me to even talk about this as a parent. Um, what I will say is that generally in situations like this, I try to make it my habit to reserve judgment and wait. Uh, and when I say situations like this, I mean, anything where there was uh, violence and, and there is, uh, sort of a review of people's reaction to violence because, you know, I've, I've been trained for, you know, assaulting uh, somebody and I've been in situations where I thought I was going to have to potentially shoot somebody and things like that. And I know that everybody reacts differently and everyone's and literally physically, their body reacts differently. In this case, fuck that. Like there's a guy with a gun in a school. Like you, you don't have to actually know anything else. And, and I, I, I usually, I hate it when you hear the takes afterwards that are like, yeah, if I were there, anything that usually starts, if I were there, I'm 
always, I would have said 100% of the time, but apparently it's not true. You know, 99% of the time, I'm going to go, nope, you don't know, you weren't there. But in this case, like, I can tell you, if I was there, you could not have stopped me from going in. Like, I don't care that he has on armor. I don't like there's children in a school and there's a guy who's been shooting and he's still in the school. There's just at this point, like nothing left to discuss. And and the, what bothers me about it is there's multitudes of things that bother me about it. But but one of the things that bothers me about it is, is that it's got the country debating how the cops should have responded when what we should be talking about is the fact that the, this guy was 18 years old and was able to buy two AR-15s, a bunch of ammo and, and body armor. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, they were definitely training these guys two months prior. Uh, and this is a quote from the very training that they got. It says, quote, a first responder unwilling to place the lives of the innocent above their own safety should consider another field. So obviously they had this training. You know, Grace, I listened to that same daily episode and I, you know, maybe I was missing it because I, I, I think that there are, uh, there's at least some debate over what all these cops knew about what was happening in that classroom. But uh, that doesn't make any. That doesn't have an excuse for this because that's incompetence is not an excuse. Like I, I'm yeah. positive that they. Yeah. I'm sorry, Grace. I'm jumping in. I'm I'm because I'm like just all amped up about this. Like I'm positive that there was debate and that there wasn't full understanding. But that's that's. I'm not saying that's, that's okay. This world. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're not, but like that's this yeah. world. You don't have full understanding. You don't have full understanding, yeah. but also like they were hearing shots that were continued to be fired within the classroom while they were outside. So like there was some sense like that of what yeah. was continuing to transpire in that room and while the daily took great pains to make it explicit that like it is really hard to define what difference that 78 minutes technically really made i think it is pretty hard to argue that like at least receiving medical attention to people who have been shot is like an issue of absolute expediency and so to delay that at all is really callous and unforgivable Back to Jason's point about this, like kind of has the conversation a little off from the point. I think that on some level, yes, we need to talk about the fact that partially why there was hesitation to approach this person is because he was or he had outarmed the people who are confronting him and whether or not we want to have a citizenry that can outarm a police officer or someone who's supposed to be protecting students in particular. But that also, too, one of the primary talking points of gun rights advocates is this whole idea of a good guy with a gun is the best defense against a bad guy with a gun. And we've now seen in multiple instances in which that is certainly not the case, especially in these school settings. Um, and so while I agree that we the bulk of this conversation can and should revolve around the ease and accessibility of these weapons. I also think that it is important to remind ourselves that like this isn't just a red herring. This is an actual data point that flies right in the face of one of these like primary talking points to the point where we now have Republicans talking about doors. So clearly it is important that the police were so inept at responding to this and clearly the wrong decision was made. I'll say one more thing about the decision not to make a decision, uh, which is ultimately what happened. And that is that, you know, if, you, if you've had any training, which they have in, it doesn't have to be active shooter training. It's, it's just training in what happens in a firefight. I mean, you prevail with violence of action. You prevail with, I mean, you have to be swift, you have to be decisive and you have to overwhelm. And the problem with everybody, you know, saying, well, let's put more armed guards in school. Let's do all these things is with the other thing that happens. Obviously, if someone is going into a school or any other place with the intent to kill a lot of people, they have all of those things, but they also have the element of surprise. And and so once that has happened, you know, you're I don't care where you are. You're outside the school. You know, there's somebody inside the school. There's kids or people inside the school and there's an active shooter. You're not in a hostage situation. All you're doing by waiting is allowing that individual to further fortify their position and to put themselves in a more advantageous uh, spot to, to defend whatever, you know, fortifications they're putting up. So, and they knew that. And that's what kills me about it is I'm just like, anyway, so it's hard to even talk about it. But yeah, I think the purpose of this is to get into what Grace is saying, which is absolutely right, which is they felt outgunned. And like, <laughs> that's fucked up. Like, yeah. I mean, like, well, it, God. You know, and I've been through these actor shooter trainings and from the school perspective, and obviously I wasn't a security guy, I was just school principal. And I think it's kind of absurd 
like to the fact that this is now an expected part of running a school now is that you have to think about these things and prepare for them even when you're not a security guard. And part of the reason why is because this country has a lot of guns. We have somewhere on the order of 120 guns per 100 residents, so more guns than people. The next most is Yemen at 53. So we are far outpacing the rest of the world in the amount of guns we have. Uh, and that also means that the amount of murders that happen with guns in this country is dramatically more than any other country. And uh, it's not just mass shootings, right? Like there are, there are all kinds of murders that happen with guns all across this country. And to me, that is the conversation, right? Not like, yes, like I do think it's important to train school security officers appropriately, unfortunately, in this environment. I do think if I were living in Texas, I would be really interested in making sure that this particular town's police force reforms in a way so that this never happens again and the right lessons are learned and that other police forces learn from this. But that seems like a small debate compared to the fact that we just have so many damn guns in this country, including guns that are so sophisticated that some police forces feel out, you know, for lack of a better term, outgunned. Well, it's not just some. Think about it this way. Like, well, first of all, it was for a long time the case that the biggest proponents of gun control were law enforcement. Which makes sense. I mean, it's an enormous safety hazard in their work. Like, it it, it makes sense for the same reason that uh, if you're an iron worker, that you know you felt that it was important that there be workplace safety laws, right? That that they shouldn't be allowed to make you hang off a building without like a second rope or however that works. Like, it, it's why it's why truckers you know, actual individual truckers, not trucking companies were in favor of things like requirements on letting them sleep. It just makes sense. And if you're, if you're making a traffic stop and you're a law enforcement officer, if you're making that traffic stop now versus making that traffic stop in 1985, you're approaching that traffic stop entirely differently. And I'm not excusing in any way police violence, but I think that violence is much more in your mind as a police officer in, in 2022 as a possible outcome of a traffic stop than it was of an outcome of a traffic stop in 1985, particularly gun violence. And I'll say that in September, Texas made it so that you can carry a handgun without a um, without a permit. And law enforcement really spoke out against that change and that they felt like that was going to make their jobs way more dangerous. And so even today in the kind of more culture war e vibes that people get into when it comes to law enforcement and guns, that was another instance very recently in which law enforcement was saying, whoa, this like unfettered access is is going to make our jobs much more dangerous. Yeah, and there's data on this. So there's a 2015 study in the American Journal of Public Health that showed that for every 10% increase in uh, gun ownership an additional 10 officers are killed. Uh, so basically 10% equals 10 officers killed from that data. And there's a ton of study out there that just shows general, like there, like the poison is in the dose here. Like there's a certain level which there's so many guns in a society that you can't really keep tabs on where they're going. And as part of that, uh, over 80% of these K-12 mass shootings are done with guns that are stolen from family members that are that are, I guess, ostensibly legal guns. So it's not just a question of the illegal guns. Like, you know, Rogan was on uh, on the air the other day saying, like, if you get rid of the legal guns, it's only the criminals who have them. These these mass shootings are not a reflection of illegal gun ownership by and large, but by the reflection of legal guns. And that's where the in my opinion, the debate should be centered. But we had a voicemail on this and maybe it's a good time to play it. Hi, Jason and Robbie. Uh, my name is Amy, and I've been for years now a regular listener of yours. Can't thank you enough for having the discussions you have on the show. I'm calling because it's been a pretty tough week after the shooting in Texas, and I'm a high school teacher. I have been listening to a lot of my regular progressive podcasts in the wake of the shooting, and I'm having a really hard time with the predictability of the response from the left. I consider myself a progressive who also happens to be a gun owner. Um, I came from the film industry where I worked as an armorer for films and television, so I was basically paid to teach firearm safety. I have a respect for the Second Amendment that I know a lot of my progressive friends have a hard time understanding. And I also have a partner who is a police officer and a former Navy corpsman who was embedded in a sniper unit um, and did two tours in Iraq. 
I tend to bristle anytime an inexperienced liberal speaks out about gun control. The broad statements of banning assault rifles end up hurting us more than helping us. And I don't believe that enough people on the left understand that a reinstatement of the assault rifle ban would most likely kick off the next civil war. There are ways to work around complete bans, and there are other laws that could be put in place for responsible gun ownership, and I pray that we can make that happen. We need to come to peace with the fact that we are in too deep in this gun culture in America to fully get rid of them. I feel like the overall conversation also tends to neglect that we have a generation of people my age, almost 40, who has been sent to war and have witnessed things that Generation X before us never witnessed. The immediate backlash against Abbott for his mental health comments is a problem. I'm a teacher and being around high schoolers all the time, I can tell you that we have a real mental health problem. It's been even more apparent post-COVID and the kids are not all right. We do not have the programs we need to address the mental health issues. And the answer has been the last few years to just go easier on the kids because they've been through trauma. I'm feeling very hopeless this week because both sides are immediately jumping to their two positions. And the reality is that the left have to give up on some of this rhetoric of getting rid of guns completely. I hate that it's always the left that has to concede, but we also need to listen to what the right is saying about the mental health issue. Now is the time to back them into a corner and make them sign legislation to fund mental health resources. Sorry for the long voicemail, and thank you for all you do. So I, I really respect our listener for recording this and putting some thought into this. I would have to say I just I disagree with the you know the larger statement that the left is somehow wrong about this. I think the left is losing this debate. It's and it has been for a long time. And and you know the question of whether we should quote unquote respect the Second Amendment. I think we need to d dig into that. What is the Second Amendment? I think the Second Amendment has been interpreted only in recent years to have this broad right to individual gun ownership. You know, the very conservative justice, Chief Justice Warren Burger, who until recently was one of the most conservative justices in American history, called an individual right to gun ownership, quote, a fraud on the American public. And it wasn't until 2008 that the Supreme Court even ruled that there was an individual right to gun ownership. And every time they took up that question previous to that, they ruled otherwise. Uh, it talks about how there will be a second civil war if we restrict guns. This is anti-majoritarian to me. You know, According to Pew, 81% of Americans support background checks, 63% support assault weapons bans, 64% um, support a ban on high uh, capacity ammunition magazines. And every time this stuff comes up, like after Sandy Hook, we had 54 senators supporting background checks who were overruled by 46 senators. The 54 senators represented way more people in this country than the 46. And, and that's not even enough. Now, the Supreme Court is about to rescind uh, New York's concealed carry law. So th this is super anti-majoritarian. This, this interpretation of the Second Amendment is totally new. And the sense that there's like some kind of threat of violence or civil war, if we don't go along with the most extreme version of the story to me, although I respect our listeners' position on this, to me, I'm unwilling to accept that. I also really appreciated this voicemail. And not to just be hawking the daily recently, but they, I thought that they did a great episode recently where they talked to a journalist who stayed in touch with the parents of Sandy Hook and how they aren't a monolith on gun reform and that they kind of resent being painted as one. And it's moments when I hear things like that and when I hear the perspective of, our, of Amy, our listener, and also when I'm reminded back to one of my favorite books I, I've read recently called Deer Hunting with Jesus by Joe Badgent. It's a much better version of Hillbilly Elegy. I highly recommend it. But he goes on a long section to just essentially say, like, liberals, you just have to give up the gun debate. You are not going to ever win it. And you kind of think about it all wrong. And I appreciate being reminded of that because that is really challenging for me. And I think that while everything you just said is correct, Ravi, and I do think that this Second Amendment has been morphed in very recent memory, I do think that the more the culture of gun ownership is something that needs to kind of be grappled with separately. I will say, though, that conflating a culture of gun ownership with the unfettered access to weapons are two different things that should be split apart and should be parsed out. And while, yes, we do see an overwhelming majority of people who want sensible background checks, when these things are actually put up 
in states to be voted on, they either pass by very slim margins or they fail by slim margins that would are shocking given the theoretical 80 to almost 90 percent approval. So to our listeners point, my like rational brain can hear this and say, like, yes, I can understand that I am out of touch with this culture and there is a way in which to respect a culture of gun ownership while also emphasizing that it is just obviously to me far too easy for people who are are experiencing a mental health crisis as she outlines to get really violent weapons and i want to speak to the mental health aspect separately and i just fear that when we equate these episodes of violence with mental health that like one we're overlooking the systematic radicalization of young people on the internet, which is something we hope to cover more in the future, as was clearly the case with the Buffalo incident, but also that we kind of grossly equate anyone with like mental health issues with the possibility of being violent and how truly that those two are not one and the same and we should not treat them as such. So while I appreciate this, I still think the conversation should be around how incomprehensibly easy it is to get such dangerous weapons when we don't make so many of our constitutional rights that easy. Yeah, what I think Amy is sort of getting at, the part that I agree with, because I don't agree with all of Amy's conclusions, but the part that I agree with is that as much as liberals don't want to hear it, usually about anything, because nobody likes to hear this, uh, it is true that it is really important for liberals to educate themselves about guns in order to to really engage in this debate and win it. And the reason for that is it's not like the whole, we got to understand Trump voters in order to like, yeah, we do, but like nobody wants to hear that anymore. Right. And I understand why, but if we're going to win a debate about a piece, about a tool, that's what a gun is. It's a tool. Um, it is used for horrific things at times. It is used for hunting at times. It's used, you know, for sport. It's used for lots of different things. But we want to engage in a debate about the use of it for horrific things that are unhelpful to society. If you want to engage in that debate and win it, you are going to be squaring off against people who are enthusiasts of that tool and therefore know a lot about it. And so you you really have to educate yourself, right? Like whenever, and so I share Amy's frustration at things like whenever I see a fellow liberal refer to an AR-15 as a machine gun, it's not a machine gun, right? It, it, yes, it is an assault weapon, but you better be ready to make that argument as to why it is an assault weapon, because there are people who are going to argue it's not an assault weapon. It is, but you have to be prepared to to make that case. And it's just like anything else. Like we we have to be better educated on what it is we want in order to get it done. So, you know, for instance, when it comes to gun safety, which is I think what we need to be calling it, like you, she's right that you're not going to get very far by going out and just saying we have to take away the guns. Now, there's not that many people saying that, but when you're just saying, and by the way, I'm a person who like personally like I'm all for a gun buyback program, and there's lots of guns I want to take away, and the AR-15 is one of them. But I understand that if you're going to go out and you're going to make that case, well, you better know what you're talking about. And you better be able to make the case in such a way that you can penetrate that gun culture. And frankly, like, I, I hate, I hesitate to ever be the guy who refers to my own damn ad that made me famous. But that was the premise of your ad. Just like you were saying, I understand yeah. this. And therefore, I want, I believe that you know, in some kind of gun control, right? That was kind of the premise of your ad. Yeah, you can't argue against, you can't argue for any change in the law if you don't simultaneously prove that you know what you're talking about. And that and that doesn't mean you have to have served in the military or anything like that, but like, you better know what you're talking about. And that's all I was trying to demonstrate. And And that's how you penetrate gun culture, by the way. Gun culture is about enthusiasm for, I mean, let's be honest, it is mostly about people like guns. That's what it is. Yeah. And and why is gun culture so such a powerful force in the country? Because there are people who have gotten really rich by selling those people guns. Like gun culture is to 2022 what the romance of tobacco farming was to like all the years in America prior to 15 years ago. Here, here's my issue, though, is like there's almost this premise in the question as if the aggrieved party are the people with the guns, whereas everything's heading in the opposite direction. Gun ownership is expanding. And what I would say in return is I 
like, Lord help me, we'll learn about what the differences between these guns are, sure. But then learn about what's happening in our cities. I'm not telling people in Missouri whether they can have guns or not. They're telling me in New York whether people can have guns or not. Like, I'm not trying to stop gun ownership in Missouri. The Supreme Court is telling us in New York we're not allowed to have this concealed carry law that we want. The Iron Pipeline is sending guns up from places like Pennsylvania and down south into cities like New York. And so what I would say to people in return is, okay, then understand what's happening in Chicago and New York City and on the streets of cities that are really trying to grapple with this inflow of guns because of policies that are happening elsewhere. And and it's just not enough to just to, to have unfettered access to guns all over this country. Now they're changing our laws to tell us that in our cities, we have to have the most permissive gun laws. And like, once again, this is this is a totally new development. And like, it's really frustrating. You know, I agree in this respect. I agree if what you're saying is that we have to educate people on the effect that it has uh, in cities and everywhere else. Like, because what we cannot expect, I'm not saying we shouldn't expect, I'm just saying realistically, what we cannot expect is for people who are, you know, who own three rifles and four pistols to research why people in Chicago are so easily getting guns and, and committing crimes. They won't do it. And the reason is that the status quo is going in their direction. It doesn't matter what you're arguing about. If you want people to change their perspective and and go against the status quo, the direction things are going, then fairly or unfairly, unfairly in this case, the burden is on you to educate uh, and to, to make the case. That's the problem here. I'd also just like to center for a second, the perspectives of people who are kind of the most vulnerable to this, which we touched on at the beginning, which are like kids in school. Like, I'm, I come to this issue as someone who grew up in the school shooter era. I have been in those drills since I was in kindergarten. I have had teachers I loved look me in the eye and be like, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to walk you through this. And now I need you to repeat back to me how you're going to like hide in this band locker, essentially. I've used to work in performing arts venues. I've had the managers of people there kind of have like tear up as they tell us that like there's not really anything they can do to protect the staff that they love. And I have nightmares about mass shootings all the time. And I see it as a total roll of the dice, luck of the draw that I haven't experienced one myself, not by any factor other than dumb luck. And I don't see it and not existing in my future for any other reason than dumb luck. And so when I hear Amy talk about like the kids are not doing well, like we have to think about mental health. I'm like, yeah. And one of the causes of this mental health stress is the unfettered proliferation of these guns that threaten us in public spaces and in required spaces like schools. So while we work on all of those other things that need to be addressed and need to be helped, it seems like there is a common sense, reasonable argument for just making it a little harder for those guns to get everywhere. And perhaps if we just started thinking about like, yeah, maybe it's not the only part of this puzzle, but like just shift the frame a little bit so that the aggrieved party is not the gun owner. I do actually think it's shifted the frame, Grace. And I think that's, and to sort of tee up this conversation we're about to have, I think that is why there are two things here that are the most frustrating. And the first is we have won the argument. We haven't won the debate. We haven't gotten the laws changed. But like the vast majority of people want the laws changed. They want gun safety. Even the vast majority of the Senate, which is structured in a way that's we know not representative of the country, wants the laws changed. So the the first thing is frustrating for the same reason that half the conversations we have on the show are frustrating, which is the filibuster. And that's a whole other conversation. We're going to talk to Peter about like what can be done about that slash what can be done at the state level. But then the other reason it's frustrating, and I've talked about this on the show before, is that, and I was sort of referring to this with the thing about tobacco, is that I think few people realize that a law was passed several years ago that basically made gun companies completely immune from any sort of uh, lawsuit or, or negligence under the law. And if you were to give me the option right now of, if you were to say, look, over the next 10 years, not a single new gun law will be passed. And you have to trade that. Know, know that like, no matter what, you can't pass a new gun law, but we'll give you, we will repeal the Immunity Act and we will make it so that regular people 
can can sue gun companies and can sue parents who were negligent with their guns and so kids got them can you know take legal action i would take that in a second because if you look at the way the culture has changed around smoking it is not because you know there are a bunch of new laws were passed it's because all of a sudden those companies were held accountable and they had to make huge changes if you pass that law this is my own view if you pass that law then all of a sudden i'll tell you what would happen the major gun companies in this country would lobby Congress to be regulated, to remove some of the liability from them so that they had, so that they would have regulations that they could follow to, so that it would no longer be the Wild West in court of, you know, how they could be held liable. And I'll tell you what, what they would do is they would want gun insurance created, and then they would go into the gun insurance business. And you know what that would ultimately be? That would be a, a registry. That would force a registry of guns. The only way to have insurance on guns is to have people have to register their guns, just like cars. And I really think that all we would have to change is get rid of this absolutely insane law that says you can't sue gun companies for their product, for negligence. Can I ask a follow-up question to that? Wouldn't, though, creating a registry of guns not necessarily solve the problem that most of these mass shootings occur with legally acquired arms? Well, here's the difference that it would make. It wouldn't make a difference in that case, but it would make a difference in, in this way. It would make a difference in two ways. One, anything where where it is a gun that is stolen or that is taken, which is often the case, which would make it where people are far more likely to want to lock their gun up to you know to make sure that it can't be gotten. But here's the other thing: is that if if you could go and sue a gun company right now and say you you sold two AR-15s and body armor to an 18-year-old. And no matter the fact that the law says that's legal, we think that 12 reasonable people from the community should get to decide whether that was a, a reasonable decision and whether you are negligent and therefore whether your negligence contributed to these deaths. If that were a trial that could actually happen in this country, as it can, by the way, for just about any other product, well, you're going to see gun companies making far different decisions. And one of those decisions is going to be they're not going to sell to somebody like that. We've all been there. Seemingly out of nowhere, you get hit by an unexpected bill or expense. And when that happens, it can feel like the weight of the world is coming down. And it's normal not to know where to turn. But luckily, Upstart is here to help. Upstart-powered personal loans can help you pay down high-interest debt, all online with simple and easy to understand payment terms. Upstart has helped over 1.8 million customers on their path to financial freedom. So whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, Upstart can help you get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. So you could check your rate in minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000 without impacting your credit score. And you could even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Don't wait. Check your rate today at upstart.com slash majority54. That's upstart.com slash majority54 to check your rate today. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash majority54. Hey, it's Elise Hugh, host of TED Talks Daily. Sound familiar? Once in a century voter turnout. Once in a century pandemic, old technology, low budgets, somehow democracy survives. What if the people with ideas to fix these problems actually had the resources to do it? The Audacious Project is catalyzing more than $900 million to fund changemakers who want to rescue our democracy. Follow TED Talks Daily to hear these ideas now. So now, now that the three of us have talked a bunch about like where the gun debate is in the country, what what we sort of feel as the way forward for that debate, uh, we're still stymied by the idea, as we just mentioned, of this lack of action at the federal level and this question of what can be done at the state level. Really, just the question of what can be done. And so that's why we asked Peter to join us. Peter Amber currently serves as the executive director of Giffords, Courage to Fight Gun Violence, which he co-founded with Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords and her husband, Captain Mark Kelly. Over the past few years, Giffords has emerged as a leader in the gun violence prevention movement, inspiring Americans from all walks of life to take action on our nation's gun violence epidemic. Giffords has helped advance gun safety and defeat the gun lobby's dangerous agenda in elections, legislatures, and courts across the country, keeping the issue at the forefront of public consciousness and amplifying the voices of the many Americans calling for change. So, Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
obviously we've talked already on this episode about you know the tragedy down in Texas and you know how just this stuff is becoming way too common and there's you know not only a massive uptick in mass shootings but also you know gun violence in general in this country and obviously the debate has shifted to what do we do about it uh, from the perspective of Giffords and just you know the national debate right now what is within sight for us right now like what what are what are democratic senators and other you know senators who are good on this issue prioritizing on the hill for potential passage yeah look i think this is you know just to be quite honest the most momentum um in a short period of time um for change that i've seen in the nearly 10 years that i've been working on this and uh there's a group of senators democratic and republican that sort of, you know, come together, a lot of moderates on both sides, um, which I think is good because it um, provides us uh, with a group of negotiators that I think is interested in coming away with a bill that we can actually pass. What are they talking about? Obviously, I'm not in the room, but, you know, I think we're talking about expanding background checks, right? We have way too many uh, firearms that are you know, sold without any background check whatsoever. Um, we know from the data that states with, uh, you know, universal background checks are safer places than those that are that, that are not. We're talking about red flag laws or extremist protection orders, right, that allow an individual in crisis to be subject to um, a temporary relinquishment of their firearm. Um, the data on that is amazing. It shows, you know, for every 10 orders issued, you can see one life saved either from a suicide or a homicide like this. So bang for your buck in terms of public safety is very, very high. Um, and we're also talking about um, these minimum age requirements for assault rifles. This past two shootings in Buffalo and in Uvalde, you've had 18-year-olds armed to the teeth and uh, the folks who are perpetrating these massacres with those guns, their brains are literally built different, right? When you're 18 than when you're 21, 22. So clearly we have a problem with a uh, you know, firearms industry that's marketing the, these guns to increasingly to kids. You have the JR-15, but you know, I think there's a pretty broad consensus that uh, 18 year olds shouldn't have assault rifles. Wait, wait a second. I've never heard of the JR-15. What's the JR-15? Is that what I think it is? It is, I'm afraid to say exactly what you think it is. It's like, this is a smaller, this is like a gun. This is an AR-15 that a smaller person can use. It's candy cigarettes. It's candy cigarettes. Um, it's it's you know, bubble gum flavored, uh, you know, vape pens, right? It is um, taking the most dangerous, literally the most dangerous consumer product out there for kids and marketing it to kids. Fuck. <laughs> Okay, I can go ahead. Sorry, you know it's almost brazen at this point. And Jason was just talking about before that you know part of the the issue here is that these handgun or just gun manufacturers are uh, they have a they have a special protection in our law. Do you mind explaining a little bit about how that came to be and and what that means in practice? Yeah, it's called PLACA, um, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Firearms Act. It provides unprecedented, exceptional immunity from liability to the firearms industry. Um, it was passed in the aughts, signed into law by George W. Bush after an effort to, you know, sue firearms manufacturers um, for their sort of, you know, culpability and um, homicide rates in some of America's largest cities. And simply what it does, it denies the victims of gun violence uh, recourse in our courts. If you know, you see irresponsible and egregious behavior from a company in virtually every single other sector of our economy, you can seek redress as an American in, in the courts. And that's something that I think, you know, we have a consensus in this country around that that's what the courts are there for, that, you know, people should have access to them. But um, what the Congress decided to do in, in the sort of 2000s was that the profits of gun manufacturers was going to outweigh the um, interest of the American people in, you know, trying to get the you know, firearms industry to act more responsibly by taking them to court. You've seen some exceptions, like, you know, the Sandy Hook families recently brought a successful case against Remington um, based on their marketing practices. And some of those marketing practices are truly disgusting. But, you know, that was that was the insurance company that ultimately um, settled. You know, the firearms industry um, had, had no interest. The, the gun company, Remington, made it very, very clear that that they did not want to 
settles. And it's just, you know, it's it's frozen the victims of firearm violence and their families out of the courts. It's despicable. And let me jump in for a second, because anybody who's hearing this is thinking, okay, well, I'm going to bring this up with other people in my life. And here's what you're going to run into. People are going to say, yeah, but like, you don't sue a car manufacturer because there are car accidents. That's not fair. Well, actually, that is in a weird way, a perfect analogy, because when a car is you right, you don't just sue for the existence of cars, but if a car has a a defect that makes it more likely to for there to be an accident, then absolutely you sue, and that's why it gets changed. That's why Ford Explorers don't roll over because an, a lawsuit just like that was brought. It's why you have all these ads on TV that say you shouldn't smoke. It's because courts through lawsuits forced tobacco companies to literally fund those campaigns because they found them to be negligent in that they were marketing directly to children while knowing that their product was addictive and dangerous. So I guess my point is, is that when people say that, you've got to say, no, no, no. What it does is it means that gun manufacturers don't have to do literally anything to try and make their product safer. They don't even have to remotely consider it because all of the liability is on the user and none on the manufacturer whatsoever. That's right. I mean, you look at virtually any source of mortality, injury, disease in this country from automobile deaths, injuries to you know, the egregious consequences of widespread tobacco use from lung cancer and other maladies. It's been um, the ability of Americans to um, come together in the form of class action lawsuits to not just sort of provide a financial penalty for irresponsible behavior, but to force, um, you know, changes in how, like you said, Jason, Ford Explorers are made to make sure they don't roll over to make sure that Volkswagen doesn't lie about its emissions, right? Like you see the courts like time and time again, you know, providing a critical path forward for um, positive social change, for simply um, making everybody safer. And like, you know, if you look at the decline of car deaths and injuries over like the past few decades, um, and the fact that now, you know, gun violence is the leading cause of death for kids, you know, just sort of let that sit in your brain for a second. Gun violence is the leading cause of death for kids. The, the reason that it's the leading cause of death for kids is not only that gun violence is going up, it's that other forms of death and injury are going down, right? Um, we're doing a better job of keeping people safe in their cars. We're, you know, keeping folks, um, you know, safer and healthier. We're asking them not to, you know, start smoking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're not even trying to do that in the gun safety space because, again, a group, uh, a very small group, frankly, that involves um, a relatively small industry, the firearms industry, in the you know context of the larger American economy, a lobby, the gun lobby that's done a good job of marketing its power um, beyond like how it actually exists, and then a very small group of you know Republican elected officials these days, they have put in place a sort of paralysis of our politics that has caused, led to a situation where last year, 45,000 Americans died from a gunshot. And, you know, twice as many were, you know, shot. People like Gabby Giffords, who lives with her injuries every day. We forget about folks like that. Peter, what are the chances of, and I, I asked this knowing that the answer is not great right now, what are the chances of something like a repeal or at least a modification of this law actually getting done at the federal level right now? Like how many votes away are we? I think we're many votes away from a placa repeal right now, but I think we're a lot closer to doing something, right? And I think that, you know, the American people um, are rightfully frustrated. You know, their Congress has done very little over the past decade, even after Newtown, after uh, El Paso, after Parkland, and now after Buffalo and U Uvalde. Um, but, you know, I, I'm staying optimistic. I'm, I'm seeing that there are people coming to the table from the Republican side that were just a month ago uh, completely and wholly uninterested in engaging this topic at all. And that's for two reasons. One, you know, folks are human. They've, they've got kids, too. And there's the sense that, you know, the Republican Party, the gun lobby, they've run out of excuses, right? It's, you know, they say it's mental health, but, you know, Greg Abbott cut $200 million in a mental health funding last year. So maybe that's just a deflection. Well, they say it's just a, you know, you, the only thing to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. But the same industry that's selling you guns is also selling these perpetrators body armor. So the quote unquote good guy with a gun 
is uh, not able to stop a massacre like the one in Buffalo. And of course, you see in Uvalde that, you know, there was, you know, there were armed guards and police officers on, on scene. So clearly, we got to do something about firearms access. And I think what we need to do is sort of come together and, you know, punch through something that is going to make kids safer in their schools and in their communities. And um, not only will that lead to sort of some impact, some like additional sort of, you know, level of public safety, we got to give the American people cause for hope and optimism. And Peter, I remember, I think this was season one of the West Wing. They were trying to get a gun control bill passed. And I think, you know, there was a scene, I think, where Josh Lyman is trying to lobby a you know, a member of the Congressional Black Caucus on on some kind of, I think, assault weapons ban or something. And the congressman eventually digs in his heels saying, like, look, this is just a piecemeal solution. And it will give the perception that real changes happen when it doesn't, which actually benefits the very forces who've been standing in the way of change. And I hear a lot of that now. I think there are some worries, and I'm sure you hear these a lot, and you probably think about this a lot, that passing the wrong kind of reform that doesn't go far enough actually could wind up benefiting the NRA, the gun industry, because it will create the perception that real change has happened, right? So what would you say to critics who, who raise that argument? Because I'm sure you hear that a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I would never support fake change, right? I would never support, you know, something that says, as its premise says that gun violence is a problem of mental illness or bad parenting or bad door policy at schools, right? That's not the direction that we're going to go. But, you know, there's something that changed over the past 10 years, right? Maybe 10 years, 10 years ago, that was true. Um, that it would have been politically unwise to uh, check a box, to mollify the American people and convince them that something had actually been done when um, in reality it hadn't. But today, um, 10 years after Newtown, we built an effective you know, gun violence prevention movement that includes you know, Giffords and Moms and many other March for Our Lives, many other organizations that are working every day, you know, going back to sort of cars, right? Like if we, um, in terms of automobile safety, at the time of Ralph Nader, decided on a strategy that you know, cars need to be perfect or no safety improvements at all, um, we wouldn't have seen the steady public health progress that we've seen from uh, around automobiles over the past few decades. Um, and I think we need to take the um, same approach with firearms. And that's the approach that we've taken relatively you know, successfully in the States. I, I might have this number exactly wrong, but it's near, I think it's 466, nearly 500 pieces of legislation that we've helped pass at the state level over the past 10 years. And you know, where when, when we started, the vast majority of Americans were not covered by a universal background check. Today, um, roughly half the American population is, um, and they have the benefit of many other safer gun laws, like the extreme risk protection law, like stronger protections for families and victims of domestic abuse. There is, there, there, there's, a, there's a lot that we can do you know, over the course of time to, to, to steadily improve gun laws and to improve the public safety and the public health. So I'm not scared about sort of letting the air out of the balloon and sort of creating the sense that sort of everything has been done by just doing something. I think we need to make progress. And I think that's going to give, that's, that's going to allow you know, voters to look and say, like, see, it is possible. Like everything that we have pushed into this movement over the past decade has led to something. And we can, you know, fix things in this country on guns and on other things, too. I think we desperately need to win. Peter, you mentioned states. You know, I'm a New Yorker. Give me an update on what you think is going to go down at the Supreme Court uh, in relation to this case. You know, for our audience, there's a, a challenge to the New York concealed carry permitting law. And it seems from the oral argument, from what I saw, that New York's law could be in jeopardy. Like, what's the meaning of all of this, both, you know, both for New Yorkers, but also in terms of the Supreme Court and how much of a threat they are to sensible gun legislation? It's an excellent question. It's something that we've dedicated our, you know, Giffords Law Center, our litigation program to addressing. We've been very active with amicus strategy, working with many people across the country. What we're hoping for is a sort of more tailored, more modest, um, smaller in scope um, decision. I, 
I, I think you're right. It's going to be adverse. You know, this law is going to go down. The, the question is, what are the implications going to be for other laws, right? You know, they could craft their decision in a way that would um, be disastrous for our ability to, you know, support, you know, sort of common sense gun safety laws, you know, um, by sort of, you know, going to say like a strict scrutiny st- standard. I hope that's not the direction that the court goes in. Obviously, um, with this court, you never know. But, you know, we are cautiously optimistic that we'll see a narrower ruling that will, you know, be ahistorical and unjust, but is not going to leave, you know, the American people sort of scratching their heads the day after looking, you know, thinking about like, you know, the future of firearms regulation. I think hopefully we'll be able to go into the sort of seven or eight states in the District of Columbia that would be directly affected by a ruling like that and see, you know, what is, you know, in the years ahead going to be vulnerable to challenge based on the Bruin ruling and, you know, what laws we could sort of, you know, use to plug the leaks and um, continue to keep the American people safe. You know, people are scared and they should be because it's crazy what the court's contemplating. Peter, to, to sort of bring this to a close, um, we have this part of the show we refer to as, as grab an oar, uh, where it's just basically arming the listeners with what they can do. And so I'm going to ask you like a three-part question. So buckle up, a three-part question for grab an oar, which is, can, can you give listeners uh, first, for the stuff that's up right now in Congress, not up, but the stuff that is being worked on to try and actually get across the line in Congress right now. Can you give them just a quick, like, this is what you're asking your members to consider. And and then the second is a resource where they can find where their state is right now in terms of things that have been passed and what can be done about it, what new stuff can be. I mean, for instance, I know that there are states who are trying to undo immunity from the state level. And then third, what can the Biden administration be doing that they're not doing. I know, for instance, we're still waiting on an ATF director, that kind of thing. I appreciate that while I'm doing this, you're having to write stuff down because it is a three-part question. So thank you. But with that, I'll let you, you know, equip people here. Great. Yeah. I would say, you know, um, in terms of grabbing an oar, one, you know, make noise, right? And, you know, this is a messy response to a big problem. American people are shocked by um, what happened in Buffalo and Uvalde, they, they, they will should be like, I'm a parent. This is, this is devastating. What everybody absolutely needs to do is pick up the phone and call every single um, of their sort of federal and state representatives and make sure that you were lighting them up and that they know that they're in the hot seat and that people expect change. Sometimes um, voters, you know, think, oh, well, Senator so-and-so, they're already like with me on guns. It doesn't matter for me to call them that is incorrect. If you want them to prioritize this issue, right, they may already be a co-sponsor of the bill, but if you want them to sort of, you know, feel the pressure, you need to make the call. Um, you can do that by going to their website or, or by going to ours, Giffords.org, signing up and signing up for alerts that, you know, allow you to contact your federal and state representatives. Uh, and then, you know, go to, you know, the, the, there's going to be another March for Our Lives on June 11th. Um, if you're in the D.C. area on Tuesday morning, we're going to have a large convening on the National Mall where we're holding the National Gun Violence Memorial. 45,000 flower vases planted in the National Mall demonstrating the sheer cost of the gun violence epidemic. Show up. Do anything you can in your community to make noise. Um, in terms of like looking at where your state succeeds and fails, on this gun safety issue, because like I said, that's like where a lot of our progress has come. Nearly 500 laws passed over the past decade. Um, You can go to, again, Giffords.org. The Giffords Law Center has a wonderful state scorecard. It's an invaluable resource that ranks your state based on the strength of their gun laws and the safety that they provide. We give letter grades. California um, ranks number one, but, you know, there are a lot of other states that um, have uh, done a lot of good work. And and one another point I want to make is that if you look at the academic research, if you look at the states that do have stronger gun laws, they are safer places, right? Gun laws work. People want to feel cynical and hopeless, but we have shown the efficacy of these laws. You know, something that, you know, Gabby always says is, you know, we don't, we're not able to meet the people whose lives that, that we save, Right. 
We, we just look at the data and know that there are people walking around today that weren't before. So, you know, take, take hope in, in that, right? We can use public policy. We can use laws that are passed at the state and federal level to save people's lives. And um, your ability as a citizen to be part of that process is, you know, one of your highest sort of responsibilities as an American. So just, you know, grab that oar. Third, on the Biden administration, um, there is absolutely a lot that the Biden administration can do on the gun safety issue. I would say if Congress fails to pass sort of meaningful background checks, they can close a lot of background checks loopholes by executive action, and they can do that by defining, you know, who is and who is not required to be a gun dealer and therefore conduct background checks, right? Um, so you can set a limit. You can say, yeah, hey, if you sell five guns a year, if you sell 10 guns a year, two guns a year, um, that makes you a gun dealer under federal law, and um, it will push sort of more firearms transactions under the umbrella of the background checks requirement, which will make you know, people and communities safer. We also need to see you know, this administration staff up on this issue, right? Um, there's a lack of capacity at the Department of Justice, lack of expertise at HHS, and then you got ATF, right? I, I would say the administration could have done a better job trying to get uh, my former colleague, David Chipman, confirmed um, as ATF director. That didn't work out. He had to withdraw his nomination, but we have another excellent nominee, Steve Dettelbach, a former U.S. attorney from Ohio, who would come and shake things up and you know turn ATF, which is the federal government's only agency dedicated to gun violence prevention, into a more effective regulatory and enforcement tool for Americans uh, fighting gun violence. That might be the best answer to grab an aura we've ever gotten. Yeah, I agree. I yeah, I, I think so. Well, Peter, thank you so much. Thank you for all the work you're doing, and you know we're we're rooting for you, and you know, and it's couldn't be doing more important work. All right. Well, thanks for having me on and uh, for talking about this important issue. Um, big fan. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it, man. So this was a very heavy episode, and there's a big part of me that is extremely hesitant to hawk my book once again at the conclusion of this episode, but I am overcoming that because, as you know, Ravi, and as you know, Grace, all of, the, all of my royalties from the book actually go toward combating veteran suicide and veteran homelessness, so I am routinely overcoming the reluctance to hawk my book, and I'm just hawking my book. So... Indulge me for a moment. Here's how I'm going to hawk it this week, which is uh, we've gotten a bunch of early reviews now. The book comes out July 5th. People can pre-order it, uh, but we've gotten a bunch of early reviews and we made a word cloud of some of the most common words in the reviews. So this is how I will uh, encourage uh, listeners to the show to go ahead and get the book if you haven't already. Uh, here are some of the most common words coming out of these reviews. Inspiring, powerful, hopeful, heartfelt, courageous, important, laugh, cry, uh, life-saving, honest, uh, Diana, which is cool, uh, beautiful, perspective, refreshing. So these are all good words, which is, which is uh, you know, flattering for me. Um, but I really do think the book is important. And I think it's going to help uh, a lot of people. And the good news is you actually don't have to wait till July 5th to read the book. We've had this launch team, which we are extending. We're just going to go ahead and keep it going because it's so popular. Uh, if you pre-order the book and then you go to jasoncander.com slash launch team, you will get the copy you pre-ordered when the book comes out July 5th. But you will also get a digital copy like in the next few days if you sign up for the launch team so that you don't actually have to wait to read it. So it's jasoncander.com slash launch team. And again, all my royalties go to combating veteran suicide and veteran homelessness. And the book is Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. Whew. I'm just wondering if Ravi and I should be slightly offended that neither of us were asked to blurb the book, despite the fact that we've mm. given such positive endorsements of mm. our own i'm not offended nobody knows who i am so it doesn't matter i don't well, know famed co-host of, of majority 54 i first think of all, that people want to know <laughs> well hold on let's define blurb because if you mean uh have your name on the back of the book yes yes you're not famous <laughs> enough for that i'm sorry but if you mean say nice things on social media and on this podcast which both both of you have done or be asked to write a review on one of the review websites, or Ravi, in his case, I think is doing a review of his own. Well, that's 100% something we're going to ask you to do. In fact, Grace, you may remember that since you read an advanced copy, uh, like way advanced early draft, and you wrote me a nice thing, I was like, I wish this were a review. 
But honestly, the two of you, I don't know if you realize this, you got something way better than that. You're both in the acknowledgments. What? Yeah, because you read early drafts and gave me feedback. Jason, that's so kind. Look at that. I think that might be the first time I've ever been in the acknowledgments for a book. So that's huge. There you go. So great. Yeah, yeah, you you're feel welcome. Better, Grace? You feel- <laughs> as if that's a thing. You, as if that's a thing I would say you're welcome for. <laughs> you read early copies of my book and spent a lot of time giving me feedback, and you're I'm like, welcome. you're welcome. <laughs> it was a true joy. All right, with that, folks can let us know. I, I bet there's going to be a lot of takes, uh, understandably, as to what we got right or wrong in this episode. You can let us know what you think of what we said here. What you'd like us to talk about in the future, either by sending us an email m54 at wondermedianetwork.com or leaving us a voicemail. 508-687-2589 508-687-2589 I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram Grace is at Grace Lynch 8 on Twitter and our show is at Majority54 on Twitter Remember, we all have a platform Make sure to use yours today Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbenile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.